0: Thank you so much for listening, so let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and today we are delighted to be joined by Tucker, or with Tucker Goodrich, who is going to participate in a discussion of one of the most exciting developments in helping you achieve your health and prevent the devastation, the epidemic of chronic disease that we've encountered over the last century. And it's a topic that most interested clinicians or healthcare practitioners who focus on natural medicine understand, but only superficially, including me until earlier this year. I didn't get it. I didn't understand that there's a refinement and application of this avoidance of this potential, potentially toxic metabolic poison that virtually everyone doesn't understand and is radically exposed to. And uh, that toxin is a special fat, typically considered to be an essential fat called linoleic acid so omega-6 polyunsaturated fat, which you may or may not have heard about, but once you're finished with today's dialogue, you're going to be stunned. So, with all that preface, welcome and thank you for joining us this morning, Tucker.
1: It's a pleasure, Doctor Mercola. Really nice to meet you finally, yeah. after after our many back and forth over email.
0: Yes, in preparation indeed. for this. Yeah, I because you know as I mentioned in, in my intro, is I like most other clinicians who who value nutritional interventions to optimize health. Uh, understand that vegetable oils, which are loaded with this poison. Uh, are something to be avoided. I don't think that's non-controversial and indisputable. Uh, but what's failed to appreciate is even if you eliminate the vegetable oils and you avoid them like the plague, you're still not hitting the mark. There is a massive likelihood that you are taking too much of this dangerous fat. So we're going to go into the details, and by if you listen to this whole dialogue and conversation, you will understand why, I can assure you, uh, because Tucker's agreed to stay on for as long as we need to, to uh, help you understand this. So before we go there, I want people to understand what your background is, and then we can dive into how come you were so far ahead of the curve in figuring this thing out when so many of us, me included, missed it. So let's go with your background 1st
1: My. Background is on Wall Street. I was a started out as a, a stockbroker. Actually, pretty quickly decided I wasn't cut out for that. Switched over to the asset management side of the business, and then into a the hedge fund side of the business. Um, first as a trader, and then increasingly got into IT and the risk management side of the business. So I wound up. Building at one point, two of the 100 biggest hedge funds in the world were running on systems that I built. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately wound up designing and running for a long period of time an enterprise risk management system. And I was largely self taught in technology. So I was good at researching, figuring out how to do things correctly, and doing a lot of troubleshooting and debugging. Um, I wound up with a staff of 20-odd people, including a lot of academic comp side people um, who I supervised and, you know, helped with troubleshooting. So I got very good at figuring out what was causing problems and ideally figuring out how to avoid having those problems occur in the first place. Um, so when I was, you know, I was going along happily doing that. And
0: uh, there's there, there's no, you didn't mention one bit of, professional healthcare training or, or just, you know, uh, studying to, uh, interpret the medical literature. So how did, how did you get that expertise?
1: Well, I, you know, was one of these guys who I, th- I'd been really interested in science and biology when I was uh, a kid. So I always had kind of a bent to apply the scientific method, which was mostly what I did in at work. It was all just, you know, engineering, the applied scientific method. Um, when I was in my late thirties, I started getting, uh, quite sick. Um, the first thing that happened to me was I had what was initially diagnosed as being a stroke and I spent, I was unable to talk while I was in, you know, at work, um, about 30% of my vision disappeared. Luckily, one of the fellows who worked for me had been an EMT and diagnosed it as a TIA and drove me to the local uh, stroke hospital, Westchester Medical, which is supposed to be one of the best in the country. And I spent the next four days there being poked at by uh, medical students and a very talented um, neurologist who was their stroke specialist. And they said... (laughs) The thing you never want to hear when you're in a hospital. Wow, this is fascinating. We never see anybody your age in the stroke ward. They're usually old people. You know, I'm 38 years old. This is not supposed to be happening to me. Um, I come from a healthy family, my grandparents and my parents all lived into their 80s and 90s. So, you know, this just was not supposed to be happening at 38, 38 years old. Um, so I got out. Ultimately, i that's when I started doing the medical research. I was able to get the doctor to change his diagnosis, ultimately, from stroke to a migraine. And if you didn't know that a migraine can leave you with a semi-permanent speech impediment, I didn't either, but apparently it does happen to people. Luckily, that speech impediment has healed over time.
0: Yeah, they're uh, almost identical in presentations, migraines. I mean, it's very difficult to d- differentiate between the yeah. two sometimes without some type of imaging study
1: so he's his comment to me now this was a professor of neurology at a teaching hospital his comment to me was that he'd never changed a diagnosis because of research prevent presented to him by a patient so that was kind of cool i you know uh, and he was wonderful he invited me into his office one Friday evening for several hours and walked through the whole pathophysiology of stroke and talked to me about all of my symptoms and what was going on in my family. Um, My wife at the time, fascinatingly, had two weeks previously also had something that was diagnosed as a stroke initially, and it also spent four days in a stroke ward. So the fact that this happened to both of us almost contemporaneously pointed strongly at something that was environmental, but you know we didn't have a clue what it could have been at that point. Um, Two years later, I came down with acute diverticulitis. Um, In the interim, I was having increasingly bad autoimmune problems. I'd always had allergies and asthma, but I started just reacting to things like you know I had a reaction to penicillin that led to an initial later corrected diagnosis of uh, a penicillin allergy. I had borderline osteoporosis, osteopenia. I'd broken six bones over the course of two years. A lot of stuff was going wrong. And I remember distinctly one day looking in the mirror in my bathroom and thinking to myself, dude, you look old. And I just thought it was, you know, age. I wound up having a colon resection because of the diverticulitis, but the symptoms Continued. Um, so, you know, very upsetting time in my life. And the medical professionals really weren't in any help at all in trying to figure out what caused things. Um, for the diverticulitis, I got the typical, oh, you need to eat more fiber. And I did so. And it got worse, leading ultimately to the colon resection. Um, you know, and then symptoms continued. So, I kept doing a lot of research. I, I mean, I took up running, right? Because running was the one thing that was shown in the medical research to inversely correlate with diverticulitis. Um, so I said, okay, fine, I'll start running. What, and what I had all what sorts year? of problems with shin splints, got what, into what? this barefoot running movement Tucker, and- Tucker, can you hear yes. me? Yes. What,
0: what year was this all starting when you started the this process?
1: So that would have been um, from, 2006 up to 2009. So over the course of a number of years. So then one day a f- friend of mine uh, who I'd met through this barefoot running movement sent me a link to a scientist's blog. At the time he was still a PhD student, um, Stefan Guillenet. And Stefan went through how diet affected dental problems. Now I'd had all sorts of, you know, eight teeth pulled countless cavities when I was a kid and reading this blog and realizing that all of that had basically been optional. That blew my mind. I mean, I don't like going to the dentist and, you know, finding out that all of my dental problems were totally the result of bad diet and not genetics, as I had always been told and that I could choose not to have this really resonated with me because thanks to a dentist, I'd stopped eating sugar 20 years before and had been able to completely eliminate my cavity problem over the next 20 odd years. So I was very receptive to that. Um, and then I started reading this blog more and more and you know, not just reading the blog, but following all of his references and reading all the papers. And he sort of guided me in how, what I should be reading. Um, which led me one day to taking a first step that nobody does in trying to fix their diet, which was cutting out seed oils. Um, Standing there at the salad bar in the office cafeteria one day, I just said, you know what? This has gotta be the worst, nastiest, cheapest stuff, looking at all these squeeze bottles full of salad dressing. And I said, I'm gonna stop eating them today. Um, Two days later, my 16 year long bout with irritable bowel disease ended. And the chronic diarrhea that I had been suffering with for all of these years, chronic to the point where I had to travel with a roll of toilet paper in my backpack just to be safe, disappeared. And I started immediately feeling better. And we can go through some of that as we get into what parts of chronic disease does this affect. But I, in short order, lost all of my excess weight. You know, in over the next two months, it just fell off me. Everybody looked at me as a result of that. I stopped eating carbohydrates and realized I had a severe um, gluten intolerance. Uh, and, you know, I, again, being an engineer by trade, I did a lot of experimenting. What can I eat? What can I eat? What brings back the symptoms? What, you know, what do I have to avoid to keep the symptoms away? And, you know, it was a the sort of transformation that made everybody who I worked with comment on what a difference they saw in me in very short order. It was a very quick change.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that backstory and helping us understand how what motivated you to become a, uh, uh, a researcher, essentially, and a teacher of what was going on and continues to go on and affects large amounts of our population. So uh, definite improvements after doing was, was still the, the, the interventions you had back then were not too surprising. I mean, that was, I mean, there are many, many people who teach avoiding seed oils now and, uh, processed foods in general, and probably would have gotten that, but I think it's to the next extreme. We ought to understand this. So, you know, you, you focus on the seed oils. I think it sounds largely through, through Stefan's work, uh, which is great. But then what, what motivated you to continue going on? And but, well, if actually, for, let, let's skip that. We can, go, we can integrate that into the rest of the discussion, which is for whatever reason you chose to focus on the, the seed oils and the linoleic acid. So maybe.
1: Not, re- not initially, actually. I didn't realize initially that that was the case.
0: Okay, when, when did that understanding or epiphany occur?
1: Well, I mean, I'd had an immediate reaction positive immediate reaction and cutting it out of my diet. So it, you know, I knew that there was something going on there, but there wasn't really an understanding. As you mentioned, a lot of people said that you should avoid seed oils, but nobody ever said why nobody really got into the mechanisms of why. Right. And what I started looking into is the why, why did it have this effect on me? Right. Why I tried going low carb to lose weight before I'd never been able to do it successfully because of the carbohydrate cravings that I would suffer. And this well, time well, along, I just forgot to eat yeah. any carbohydrates for a week and- But
0: but, but they, there, there is a why uh, offered or explanation to the why, which is, and it still persists to this day, is that balancing of the omega six to three ratio. I mean, that's been taught for decades. So that, I mean, that would be the justification for elimination of the CDLs because you can't have massive amounts of omega-6. And even to this day, many people think, oh, the solution for too much omega-6 is to increase the omega-3. We'll talk about why that is a dangerous, dangerous strategy.
1: That's exactly right. The ratio is not really what's important. Um, What's important is avoiding the omega-6 fats. And I mean, there are disease models like age-related macular degeneration, where that's starting to be clearly understood and you can find papers saying explicitly that the important intervention there that prevents that disease from progressing is reduction of omega-6 fats and you can't prevent it by increasing your omega-3 fats. And I've got papers that show that nasty, you know, in animal models, very nasty outcomes, liver failure with a lower omega-6 to omega th- with a lower omega-6 to omega-3 Ratio, but high absolute levels of both fats still allows uh, pathology to progress. Yeah, which to is, progress.
0: is if once you understand this, it's exactly what you would predict. Precisely what you would
1: predict, based on evolution. It's exactly what you would predict. That's right.
0: Yeah. So um, when you talk about omega six, it really is synonymous with. Linoleic acid, because that is the bulk of the omega six. So, why don't we di- di- diverge off there, start so people given a bit of an understanding of the biology of what's going on here? So, talk about the omega six in general, and how linoleic acid is the primary contributor.
1: Sure. So, I'm sure most of your uh, listeners are pretty well informed about this stuff, but there, you know, broadly speaking, three types of fats: saturated fats, which are uh, have a full complement of hydrogen atoms monounsaturated fats, which are missing a single hydrogen atom, and then the polyunsaturated fats, which are missing multiple hydrogen atoms. Um, What that means is that polyunsaturated fats are very susceptible to oxidation, which means that the fat breaks down into subcomponents. And those are what we're going to spend most of this talk discussing because it's this oxidative breakdown products that have the negative effect on human health. Um, Over the last call it 160, 70 years, these have gone from being very rare in the human diet. You would get them from eating, you know, plants and meat and cheese and fish to being introduced as a product of refined seed oils, like originally, Cottonseed oil, which was uh, introduced in the late 1800s into the human diet. At one point, they had to pass laws because lard was so adulterated with cottonseed oil because it was a cheap alternative. I mean, you know, not not to get too into conspiracy things here, but it was literally a repurposing of an industrial waste product, which is what cottonseed oil was from the cotton uh, industry into something that they figured out they could detoxify or so they thought and feed it to people, uh, which ultimately led to the introduction of Crisco in 1911 um, as a lard alternative, which really brought these consumption of these fats as a, according to Procter and Gamble's marketing department, healthy alternative to um, animal fats, uh, which were seen as being less clean because they didn't come from a laboratory. Essentially, that's how Procter & Gamble marketed it. So over the next hundred years, consumption of these seed oils went up and up and up, um, promoted in a large part by the cardiology profession, which had convinced itself that saturated animal fats were the cause of the heart disease epidemic that had overwhelmed the but, but that, know, England and the United States. And that,
0: that, that promotion by the cardiologist didn't really occur till 50. So there was like another initial 50 year period. The first part of the 20th century where the, the medical profession had embraced it largely because of uh, Ansel Keys work, I believe.
1: Yes, that's true. And a lot of it, a lot of it early on was just that it was a cheaper alternative to yeah. butter. Um, yeah. I mean, I, in my economics class in college, they talk about guns versus butter, which came out of the uh, food shortages from World War One. You know, what are you going to focus your production on? Well, the answer to that question, guns versus butter, was seed oils. It was the way I mean, that's what how margarine was originally invented. It was made from beef fat and and, you know uh, refined into something that looked like butter. Ultimately they started using vegetable oils, seed oils to produce that same product. And they always, it was always promoted as a healthier alternative to animal fats. Cause there was a widespread, um, there was a book. I can't remember. Um, I think it was the jungle Upton Sinclair mm-hmm. wrote a very unpleasant fiction novel about life in the, um, animal butcher industry in Chicago that really turned a lot of people off. Um, there was also a large religious movement through the seventh day Adventists uh, who were trying to promote a vegetarian diet as a healthy alternative. So that continued even before the, the AMA and Ansel Keys came along. There was always that promotion of this as a healthier alternative. Yeah. So yeah. as you pointed out by after world war II. um, it was explicitly promoted as the healthy alternative to um, animal fats. And the thought was that it would reduce heart disease. And we'll get into some of that because they did a lot of human studies at the time and got some rather surprising outcomes, including one that Ansel Keys did.
0: Yeah, so in my mind, this is the most catastrophic, devastating, Impact on human health in the history of uh, in the history of human race to ch- to make that radical change in the exact opposite direction of what is needed to optimize human health is it, it has killed millions, probably hundreds of millions of people prematurely.
1: And, I, and still, yeah, continue,
0: don't, still continues don't, to because people don't understand this.
1: That's right. People don't understand it, even especially medical professionals, but a lot of scientists, you know there's a vast literature that we're going to discuss a tiny little portion of, uh, out there. This is not everything that we're going to discuss today is based on studies that have been done in the medical literature or uncontroversial history of the alteration of the American diet over the last hundred, 150 years. So this is not, you know, this, this is the mainstream explanation of what is causing our chronic diseases. What has what I've done that's distinct is just, I'm an inveterate reader. I'm a speed reader. I love reading med- medical journals. God help me. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs a hobby. This one's turned into mine. But what nobody's really done is gone through and connect all the dots. There are a lot of people who understand little sections of it, but they haven't gone on to coalesce everything into a common explanation for these pathologies across different disease states and different species even. Um, yeah. and I think that's, that's what I've been able to do. Um, and I yeah. think that's kind of the key insight, um, that makes this message really compelling yeah. now.
0: It's a radical step in the right direction to help shift the consciousness around this issue. Cause it's so important to, we're going to make an, a massive impact on, cutting down the epidemic of this chronic disease. So the brief summary is uh, omega, omega-6 primarily linoleic acid, which I believe is what 60 to 90% of the omega-6. If, if you have a, a omega-6 reading, you're, you're probably somewhere 60 to 80% of that is linoleic acid.
1: That's correct, yes. Yeah.
0: highly susceptible to oxidative damage. You are just like breathe out the wrong way and it's gonna get oxidized. And then these oxidative byproducts are, are what devastate your health. And we'll go into the specifics of why, but we only have, here's the key. 150 years ago, as you alluded to, we had minute amounts. And I want to get into some of the specifics because I think it's important as we tease out the details, it was like two to three grams a day, two to three grams a day. And now we are getting 10, 15, 20 times that. And now that doesn't, may not sound like a lot because, you know, we may. You you can eat that much more sugar and still potentially not have problems. Now, I'm not a big fan, and neither is you are, uh, you aren't, and most other health professionals have large amounts of sugar, but compared to this, because sugar doesn't oxidize like these fats do. It just, it it has other metabolic consequences, but it it is nowhere near as damaging of these fats.
1: Right, and my my personal experience, I mean, there's no, you know, (sighs) There's no question that sugar's not good for you. and yeah, I love- I well, have Excess the- sugar, excess sugar. Excess sugar, exactly. And I have the dental work to prove it. I mean, as I like to say to people who claim that car- carbohydrates are healthy and ex- even in excess, I say, look, any food that rots your face isn't healthy, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but that said, even avoiding sugar diligently for a couple of decades didn't prevent me from getting sick, uh, didn't prevent the weight gain, and it didn't prevent some of the other negative, uh, effects that I saw that reversed when I fixed my diet. Um, so it's, you know, there's a wonderful paper out there by a researcher at the National Institutes of Health, uh, Christopher Ramsden, who looked at the change in the human diet over the last, over the 20th century. And the single biggest change was the introduction and increase of soybean oil which is primarily an N6 fat. And it went up a thousand fold over I the think, course of the century.
0: Ten, I think it was 10,000 fold, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Oh, it, no, it, it was a thousand fold, which was still Whoa. a huge, huge change. It's oh, the God, single God. biggest change that happened over the 20th century. God, this is crazy. Um, and the initial level I think he said was like one to 3% of energy in the human diet. And now it's up to 15 to 20% of energy in the human diet has been, it's been a massive change and a massive change that was never properly, um, understood prior to its introduction. It's not obviously acutely toxic, right? It's not like you're going to go drink a, you know, a bottle of corn oil and kilo over dead. Um, the parallel I like to make is with cigarettes, you can go, cigarettes will make you nauseous and ill the first time you smoke them, but they won't give you lung cancer. That takes time and a constant exposure to it. And I think that that's pretty much the same. The best metaphor for excess consumption of seed oils um, is yeah. that it takes exposure over time. It's not going to happen. Now, this gets into the problem with medical research is that it's generally done in short term. And a lot of the medical research that we count on now, like the food-related epidemiology, which was the field largely invented by Ansel Keys, didn't exist when all of these things were introduced in the diet. So it was a complete blind spot that happened. And then when organizations like the FDA came around, this was something that was generally regarded as safe. And so a lot of research hasn't, was never done. And I mean, it's not, you know, there was no malign intent here. They thought that they were doing something that was good. They just, you know, it's just, just like doctors used to recommend smoking because they thought it was healthy. Um, I think there's a excellent parallel there. And only as the diseases that are related to it became pandemic, do we start to realize, oops, this may have been a mistake.
0: Yes, indeed. So let's help people understand how this, what this excess consumption does and how it damages your body at a molecular level because you, you've you quoted some of the associations uh, that are, are present. Uh, and, and I think both of our minds, we view it as probably the single largest variable to this this epidemic of disease that we're having. but. But at a molecular level, there's a, it, 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 dam- it not only damages your, meta- your metabolism, but your body's ability to generate energy in your mitochondria. And to help understand that, maybe we're diving in prematurely, and if there's another topic you want to preface before, that's fine. But in my mind, it's probably one of the key elements. There's a, a very special fat that's primarily... Only located in your mitochondria, and most of it's in the inner mitochondrial membrane, called cardiolipin, uh, that has uh, four fatty acids, unlike triglycerides, which you have three. Uh, and most of it's linoleic acid, which you know is. is that, a, yeah.
1: That well, that let's clarify that because that's a common misunderstanding in the scientific okay. literature, and you'll find a lot of papers that say exactly that. I know we shared one back and forth. Yeah. um that said precisely that that is actually not the case okay there are a wide variety of different what are known as species of cardiolipin which means it is comprised of various different fatty acids linoleic acid still is still four there's still four in the in there's the- always four fats but the different you know the individual fats can vary sure so some cardiolipin contains can contain oleic acid or palmitic acid or the acids that we get through uh, fish oils, DHA, and EPA. I don't think EPA. Anyway, it can be a wide variety of different fats. Definitely DHA, for
0: sure.
1: Right. And they have very different effects on mitochondrial function, which is an area that's not really well understood. But we see it, for instance, in the difference between mitochondria in the brain and mitochondria in the heart. The heart seems to really like linoleic acid and preferentially builds cardiolipin with linoleic acid. The brain really dislikes linoleic acid and preferentially builds mitochondria with, or cardiolipin in the mitochondria with other fats like DHA, which is one of the reasons to give you an idea of how important this is. 20% of the fat in your entire body is contained in cardiolipin. So this is a
0: wow. That I had no idea that that that's a fantastic uh, number. I, I've never heard heard or read that before. Twenty percent.
1: Twenty percent is, is what well, I think the paper gosh. that you sent me said that. Um, so I, this I is, somehow missed it in the paper, but this is well. It was a very dense paper. <laughs> yeah. I'd read it. I'd read it before you sent it to me. Um, so this is. And, you know, just for anybody who doesn't understand mitochondria, mitochondria are what distinguish us from bacteria, right? Mm -hmm. It's what allows us to be a multicellular creature. Um, They are what produce the energy in your body. What's known as ATP, which is a chemical carrier of energy. If you're to give you an example of how important it is, cyanide which we all know is highly toxic cyanide breaks your mitochondria and that's why it kills you so fast it prevents mitochondrial respiration and therefore your entire body shuts down almost instantly so this is something we want to take good care of <laughs> cuz they're ev- they're everywhere in almost every tissue i think in except for red blood cells perhaps in your body has uh mitochondria in it and depends on you know, thousands of mitochondria and things like muscle cells have huge numbers of mitochondria to generate the energy that allows us to walk around and live and breathe and do everything else that we do. So, you know, clearly breaking these is a major problem. Um, cardiolipin is there studies that show that cardiolipin is directly controlled by dietary intake of fats. Um, that is, to an extent true, obviously, as I said, different tissues build, uh, cardiolipin and the mitochondria at a different fats, but they can vary that composition in fairly short order through changing the diet in rat models, um, like in the order of weeks. Um, so you can see changes, you know, pretty quickly. I noticed things happening in days. Um, and some of the th- some of the things took longer, but you know, you can have an immediate effect on your health, in my experience and that of others at this point. Um, what's unique about linoleic acid in cardiolipin is that it is very susceptible to oxidation when it is in the cardiolipin molecule. Two linoleic acids that are adjacent to each other. And as you mentioned, that's what you find in the heart. Um, can oxidize each other. They're also attached to proteins in the mitochondria that contain iron, and that iron can catalyze the oxidation of cardiolipin. Um, This is a pretty fundamental process in the body. I mean, lots of us have heard of autophagy. I'm sure you've talked about that. Um, Cardio oxidation of cardiolipin is one of the things that controls autophagy. So it's one of the signals that your body uses to say, "Uh Oh, something's wrong with this cell. It needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Um, Which is basically what autophagy is, is a mechanism of cleaning up broken cells. And the cell knows that it's broken when it has too many broken mitochondria and the process that controls that is largely the oxidation of omega-6 fats. So by Altering the composition of cardiolipin in your mitochondria to one that's richer in omega-6 fats, you make it far more susceptible to oxidative damage. And there are neat studies where they've actually gone and replaced the linoleic acid in cardiolipin molecules with oleic acid, the fat that um, is in olive oil. And they find that it makes the cardiolipin molecules extremely resistant to oxidation, to oxidative damage. Um, And that is basically what I think we need to go back to. That's the model that we evolved with is low levels of linoleic acid in our diet and therefore in our cardiolipin. Now, one of the neatest papers I've ever seen looking at this, um, something that encapsulated this whole model that I'm talking about took rats and we'll talk about, you know, obviously there are problems with rat models. I'm sure you've talked about that a lot, but this is a pretty good model. They took rats and they fed them either a regular rat chow, high carbohydrate diet, or they added uh, polyunsaturated N6 fats to their diet. Just adding the um, omega-6 fats to the diet caused the mice to become diabetic. They became insulin-resistant, leptin-resistant, obese, and, you know, just, I mean, the differences are pretty stark between the fat mice and the skinny mice on the high-carbohydrate rat diet. But rat diabetes is different from human diabetes. Rat don't get um, high, high blood sugar when they get diabetic. So they gave the rats, half the rats, a poison called... Uh, To make them diabetic basically makes them type one diabetic by killing the beta cells in the pancreas so they killed half their beta cells all of a sudden they became hypoglycemic now just the high PUFA diet caused a breakdown in the cardiolipin content in the mitochondria in their hearts right so just adding seed oils caused heart damage through a change in the cardiolipin composition Adding hyperglycemia on top of that caused necrosis of the heart. They induced heart failure in these rats. Heart failure, as I'm sure Dr. Mercola will comment, is one of the biggest health crises that's going on in the industrial world and is going up every year. And we now have an animal model of how to induce heart failure in a very short period of time, which is feed him omega-6 fats and make them hyperglycemic and boom, you get it almost instantly. Now in people, it takes a lot longer, but this is one of the cleanest models I've seen of how to induce an epidemic disease that there's not much other explanation for why it's happening in humans.
0: I think this would be a good time to to explain what they actually find because the the seed oils, as you mentioned, caused it, but the seed oil by itself isn't the issue. It's the oxidized byproduct, And that's exactly right. One of the ones that we are most commonly familiar with is 4-HNE. Uh, which is, and there's others, but that's, this is the one that's relatively easy to measure. And that, I think in the study you quoted, that is what they measured. That it's just a they, absolute correlation between the elevated levels of
1: 4-HNE and the heart failure. Sa- sadly, in that particular study, they didn't measure 4-HNE. Oh, okay, yeah, I was, got this
0: confusion with another one. Then.
1: It was done, yeah, there are, there are other ones. There are studies looking at HNE in humans, right? Now, HNE is a... Breakdown, the primary breakdown product of linoleic acid after it gets oxidized. Okay. Why is this important? It's highly toxic. Um, linoleic acid breaks down to HNE even in the even just in storage. This is well demonstrated in the literature. If you add heat, it breaks down even faster. One of the amusing things about um, the cardiology profession and polyunsaturated fatty acids is on the one hand they tell you to eat lots of them because they're quote unquote heart healthy. On the other hand, they tell you don't eat fried foods. Well, what are foods fried in? They're overwhelmingly overwhelmingly fried in vegetable fats nowadays. And the problem with that, and the reason that cardiologists after telling you to eat them tell you not to eat them is because these fats break down into HNE when they're cooked and this is you know, again, this is one of these things where the best source for reading about that is to go read the industrial literature from the oil industry, where you find papers looking at what happens to French fries when they're fried in vegetable oils and how they become full of this toxic product. And the industry is saying, maybe this is a problem, guys. (laughs) We shouldn't be eating this stuff. It's it's um, an interesting
0: tangent. that there's an organization ostensibly uh, designed to, or, or whose purpose is to protect the public health. It's called CSPI, Consumers for Science and the Public Interest. And they took out full page ads in the 80s, I think, encouraging McDonald's to stop cooking their French fries and beef tallow, which is primarily saturated fat, and switch to vegetable oils. Yes. They are probably responsible for killing prematurely tens of millions of people.
1: I don't think that's a huge overstatement. And I mean, even now you can go find papers and literature. I mean, let's just go through three of them really quickly. I mean, which will kind of lead us into the, what diseases are we talking about here, but they're in cancer, in fatty liver disease, in two different cancer models in fatty liver disease and in, oh, I'm missing one right now, but we'll just talk about those two. Um, You can't induce those diseases without linoleic acid in the animal models that they use in laboratories. So you, if you feed a rat beef tallow, you can give it 30% of its calories as alcohol and it won't get alcoholic liver disease, right? You can, you must give them seed oils to induce cancer in animal models of cancer. You must. It is required, that's the language used in the paper, right? So this is a really fundamental process that we're talking about here. And this is in the uh, animal cancer models from 0% up to 4 or 10%, depending on which model you're looking at of energy as seed oils increases cancer incidence up until you get to a threshold. So in the breast cancer model, Cancer incidence increases up to 4% of calories as seed oils, and then additional seed oils doesn't cause any more cancer. Now, that's what's relevant to us. Most people in the United States are at 8%. So we're way over what these thresholds in the lab would suggest is a safe level of these fats based on the laboratory work in animals, which it's important to note is how toxicology is done, right? We don't give things that are suspected to be toxic to people first, generally, outside of the food system, of course, we give it to animals. And then I can't think of any product that if you gave it to animals, increased their rate of cancer, gave them fatty liver disease, and caused obesity would make it into the food supply. But that's where we are right now. We've got this huge disconnect between what the lab scientists, science tells us we should be doing with this and what our dietary guidelines tell us we should be doing this, which is the scientists are saying, oh, look, it's poison. It causes all the chronic diseases and the government's saying, eat it, eat lots of it. It's not a good thing. Um, so cancer, HNE is a, um a mutagen, right? A mutagen is a toxin that causes DNA damage. One of the primary genes that HNE damages is the P53 anti-cancer gene. This is the most common mutation in cancers. It's found in 50% of cancers. It's preferentially mutated by HNA, which can explain a lot of the increase in cancer over the last 120 odd years, um, P53 is the most, it, it's literally a cancer prevention gene. It's how your body regulates cancer. I, you know, you can all draw your, same conclu- your own conclusions about the wisdom of eating something that can cause that to break. Um, it has been demonstrated. I've got a long post that I'm going through right now. Um, it has been demonstrated in the animal models as the cause of obesity. Um, there's an animal model of obesity a lab diet called d12492 which was uh, named the cookie dough diet by stefan guinea rats love to eat it right it's like eating cookie dough it makes them obese it gives them diabetes it gives them you know this is the standard diet that's used by scientists to um, make rats sick like humans get sick um, back in 2012 and that's you know an important point that we should I just want to make is a lot of these studies that I'm talking about are going to be fairly recent. And that's why a lot of this is new information to people, because a lot of this work has come out recently. So in this 2012 study, um, Ramsden, the scientist that I mentioned before, who looked at the increase in soybean, looked at a mouse model of the increase in linoleic acid in the diet over the 20th century and found out that that is exactly what causes obesity in this mouse model, right? If you feed the mice, lots of saturated fat, they don't get fat and they don't get sick. It's only when you increase the linoleic acid in the diet from 1% to 8% that they become obese. Now this standard mouse model of fat, uh, to induce obesity typically has like 20% of the energy in the diet is N6 seed oils. Um, other people have come along and confirmed that finding and they've looked at... Now what's really interesting, you know, again, how do we take this from animals to people? Because people aren't mice and rats and labs. What uh, Alfheim and Ramsden were observing is that back in 2006, I think, there was a drug introduced called Ramonabant, which was an anti-obesity drug, right? It was a bit of a miracle drug. I want to quote this exactly because it's so important to understand the effect that this drug had on humans. Large randomized trials with Ramonabant have demonstrated efficacy in treatment of overweight and obese individuals with weight loss significantly greater than a reduced calorie diet alone, In addition, multiple other cardiometabolic parameters were improved in the treatment groups, including increased levels of HDL, reduced triglycerides, reduced weight circumference, improved insulin sensitivity, decreased insulin levels, and in diabetic diabetic patients, improvements in HbA1c. This paper was released in 2007. Unfortunately, Ramona had a side effect that it caused people to want to kill themselves so it was withdrawn from the market um, and it largely killed research for several years into that area but what alfheim did in 2012 was demonstrate that the mechanism behind romanoband is to block the metabolism of seed oils into the chemicals in your body and the endocannabinoid system that cause overeating now i had mentioned um, my experiment my experience when i stopped eating seed oils was that I forgot to eat carbohydrates. The effect of Romanaban in these mouse models is to make them crave carbohydrates and to stimulate them to eat sweet foods and carbohydrates, right? And everybody's familiar with this effect. Well, not everybody's familiar with this effect in humans, but everybody's heard of this effect in humans. It's called the munchies and it's what you get after you smoke pot because the endocannabinoid system is the system that marijuana affects. And the chemical that Ramona Bant blocks is the, your body's um, homologue to the THC in marijuana, right? So essentially what we've done to ourselves is given ourselves a chronic case of the munchies, which is blocked by this unfortunately very harmful drug to people, right? This is as open and closed a case for causation as you're gonna find in the medical literature. We have a human drug that treats this. And as I just read, it treats all these different aspects of this disease. And it works through this one pathway that we have a clear demonstration of in animal models.
0: Yeah, and that would be great if we could use a drug, but I learned many decades. I I appreciated the fact that drugs rarely, if ever, if ever, are the solution for a disease. And even though they effectively treat the mechanism, they almost invariably have some side effect that in many, if not most cases, is far worse than the disease they're designed to treat. In this case, suicide. So
1: if you're not- And in this case, the drug is completely pointless because the dietary fix is well known and is
0: simple. Absolutely, 100%. I just want to take this back and kind of tie it in for people so they get it. Uh, because I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on some of these studies deeply, uh, but they're supportive of this main thesis, which is to understand that a hundred, a mere 150 years ago, one century and a half, the average dietary intake of this linoleic acid was about two to three grams a day. Around that same time, the diseases that we're talking about cancer, heart disease, uh, the two primary ones which take well, no, the, the two primary ones which kill more than fifty percent of the people. Then, of course, there's diabetes, obesity, dementia, uh, age-related macular degeneration. All of these diseases. Oh, and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they were at that time, 1850, were less than one percent. In some cases, it was it, it was a very rare disease, virtually undocumented. Like some of these cancers and age-related macular, they didn't exist almost.
1: That's that's exactly right. That's what yeah. we saw over the 20th century was a huge increase in all of no. the chronic diseases. That's,
0: we're tying it together. It's this increase in linoleic acid, and it's ultimately it's oxidative end products which cause the damage. But it's the increase simply lowering it down to the way our great, great grandparents had and use, you can essentially eliminate
1: almost every single one of the diseases is prematurely killing us. That's, that's what we're hoping. (laughs) I mean, my, you know, probably the most, um, radical change that I personally saw. And it's another one that's, you know, once this happens to you and you turn around and you start go looking get start looking into the scientific literature you find out that this is a well-documented effect and it's one of the reasons why i stopped seed oils in the first place because um, i read a blog post that Stefan guillene did that detailed how uh seed oils control sunburn and that sounds nuts i'll be the first one to say that it sounded really nuts to me because you know i mean i don't know if you you know, if all your listeners are going to be able to see me, but I'm blonde, blue eyed, pale skinned guy who used to be super susceptible to sunburn. I would, you know, go out and turn into a roasted tomato in 45 minutes. It was horrible. I hated the sun. I had to wear sunglasses all the time, you know, hats, but I ski and I love the outdoors. So I was always out into the, into the sun. So shortly after I fixed my diet in the order of weeks, um, I went skiing in March on a, what we call a bluebird day, you know, not a cloud in the sky. And the end of the day I came in and typically I would have a sunburn on my face and I had nothing. And I was just like, this is, you know, I'd heard an anecdote about a guy who said that, you know, changing his diet cured his sunburn tendency. And I thought that was ridiculous. Um, So then a couple of weeks later, my, now ex-wife, and I went to an event in New York City in Central Park. And we stood out in the sun side by side for two and a half hours. Um, I generally don't use sunscreen unless it's really extreme because I hate sunscreen. Um, But anyway, we both stood there side by side. We got home at the end of the day. And she looked at me and she said, look how burned I got. And I looked at her and I said, Look at me, I didn't burn at all. Now, this is really notable because, you know, I'm pale and blonde. Uh, my ex wife was dark and Colombian, and dark skinned, and she burned and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Since then, I've, you know, it's been almost 10 years now, and I've been up to the Alps at altitude and I moved down to Texas and lived there for a year where I would go out and run and I love to run. So I would go out and run for three or four hours and, you know, go out on my mountain bike, I get a little pink at the beginning of the season, and then I go the entire rest of the summer with no sunburn um, and no sunscreen. Um, and Thanks to the miracle of Twitter, I have countless anecdotes from other people who've seen the exact same thing. So go to the scientific literature and what does it say? It says susceptibility to UV radiation damage is controlled by how much polyunsaturated fats in your diet. It's like a dial. They can control how fast it happens and how fast you get skin cancer by how much omega-6 polyunsaturated fat they give these mice. Gee, that's kind of a good thing to know, don't you think? I mean, if you look at the charts of you know their, the epidemiology of sunburn, it's skyrocketed over the last few decades, right? And it's skyrocketed in concert with this steep increase in the use of um, uh, sunscreen, which obviously isn't doing anything. Because skin cancer incidents, including nasty ones like melanoma, which have also been epidemiologically linked with seed oil consumption, this is a kind of useful thing to know. I mean, it just changed my life not having to worry about sunburn anymore. And it's been, you know, this is 10 years into it at this point. It's fantastic. Yeah. That is it doesn't great. mean that I'm invincible, by the way. I mean, I yeah. can if I'm out in the sun for seven or eight hours, I'm gonna get a bit of a burn. Cause I mean, look at me, but Sure. Or
0: go to the tropics, you know, we're,
1: yeah. If I go to the tropics or I go up at altitude, then I'll use, you know, some sunscreen on my face or wear a hat or whatever, or do something sensible about it. But the difference between the 45 minutes it used to be and six or seven hours is that's a huge change in a lifestyle for me. Yeah. It's and interesting. I think for anybody else.
0: Yeah. We had promote, we had have and still do promote. And there's a, probably other benefits for it too. uh, uh, antioxidant called astaxanthin, which, Yes, consistently lowers the time that which you will, or increases the time at which you will sunburn, but and my the mechanism guess is, of ashes. mechanism is just protect it is protecting linoleic acid
1: degradation most likely. Bingo, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, so. And we can't we can't get out of this without discussing carnosine and oh, no, no, no. Yeah, we're gonna rosemary do at some point, yeah. just as well, what's down the road. Because but I yes. want to go
0: to another analogy that the, the sunburn was a beautiful metaphor and illustration as to what's going on here. But I want to take it to a, a, an even more contemporary challenge, which is 2020 and the introduction of SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 pandemic. So th- there, you know, with all this. Knowledge that an uh, influence that we have of how it uh, connects to chronic disease. How about acute diseases like dying from SARS-CoV-2? So, uh, you have in written about and in previous podcasts discussed this. And I'd like you to review that now, especially for some of these metabolic byproducts and white blood cells, like leukotoxin that takes <laughs> linoleic acid and just convert it to this toxic structure, which, which. And I've done and read a lot about COVID-19 and the, the metabolism and the physiology of what's going on and you know vitamin D and some of the other cytokine storms and all the inflammatory com- components. But I have ne- this is the first time I've ever really understood it at an even deeper level, the fatty acids subst- substrates to contribute to this inflammatory. Uh, domino effect. So why don't you review that with us? Because it really is fascinating. So you know, w- w- if you if you integrate this knowledge, you'll let, radically lower your risk for developing a complication from exposure to this virus.
1: That's, yes, that's certainly what the conclusion that I drew from, I did an enormous post on this, um, looking at what are the effects of linoleic acid in uh, SARS-CoV-2 and SARS in general. So, SARS is uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, right? That's the name given to COVID-19 originally. Um, SARS kills you by giving you what's known as acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, okay? ARDS is, can be caused by lots of different things, not just these viruses. Uh, you can get it from influenza, you can get it from uh, inhaling acid into your lungs. Um, There are lots of different ways to give yourself ARDS, right? What's fascinating is the human literature is quite clear that you can induce ARDS through feeding seed oils, right? Let me say that again. You can induce ARDS through feeding seed oils. Very sick people who can't eat are fed intravenously. Um, It's called... uh, total parenteral nutrition. And generally this is used through a product called intralipid, which is made out of soybean oil. Okay. Soybean oil and sugar. Yes, I know. It's really kind of, when you start to understand all this stuff, it's just mind boggling. So some research, some doctors did an experiment where they noticed that a lot of their patients who came into the ICU and got TPN then subsequently got ARDS. So they started playing with what they were feeding them. And what they discovered was this soybean oil formula increased the patient's rate of getting ARDS, which, you know, just to back up a small bit, the fatality rate from ARDS is 30 to 60%. So you really don't want to get this, even outside of the context of COVID-19. So they discovered that feeding seed oils increased the rate of ARDS by seven times, sevenfold. Now, to their credit, these doctors did a paper that was kind of bad science because they changed the variable as they saw what they were doing to their patients, but extremely good medicine. Between the beginning and the end of the study, which went on for several years, they stopped using this uh, infusion in their patients to the extent that they could. There are some extreme circumstances where it's unavoidable and they saw the rate of ARDS go down sevenfold in humans over time in a real hospital environment. So, okay. They've also found that in humans, the um, amount of N6 fats in your body predisposes you to getting ARDS, right? So what happens in COVID-19? The body comes into contact with this virus The virus starts attacking, obviously, the uh, cells in your lungs is where it kills you. And your body starts an immune reaction. The white blood cells come and they try and, you know, they take away the cells that are too infected and they produce toxins to try and kill the virus, right? The key toxin that's produced in ARDS, the one that causes the symptoms that kill you is a toxin called leukotoxin, Leukotoxin, because it's made by leukotrains, which is one of the names given to white blood cells. So, leukotoxin is made from linoleic acid. Oh, excuse,
0: excuse, I think it's leukos, leukocytes, is what you mean, not leukotrains. Leukotrains is a.
1: Did I. Uh, yes, I misspoke. Yeah. Leukocytes. Yes, thank you. Um, leukotoxin is made from linoleic acid by white blood cells to kill pathogens. And it's toxic enough where, if you inject it into animals, it kills the animals in minutes if you inject enough. Um, highly toxic substance. Leukocytes that are incubated with linoleic acid convert all of the linoleic acid into this toxin until there's none left. So this is a very fun, it's a very fundamental disease process, right? One of the other things that happens in ARDS is The omega seed oils, I found a great study that looked at ARDS in patients in, I think it was in sepsis. Um, And what they saw was that over time, the amount of uh, omega-6 fats in tissue declined, but what increased was HNE and probably leukotoxin, the toxic metabolites of these fats. So a major part of the disease process in ARDS is the conversion of omega-6 fats into these toxins. And that is what is killing these patients. Um, It is often noted that what kills people in the popular press, you will hear about this cytokine storm. But what I'm describing is the mechanism of the cytokine storm, right? Leukotoxin is uniquely what causes the the side effects or the symptoms of ARDS as has been clearly demonstrated in the animal models. So it seems to me that a sensible thing to do would be look at the research in humans, note that people who have higher levels of omega-6 are more susceptible in ARDS to get ARDS and change your diet, right? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Absolutely. So thank you
0: for expanding and and explaining it. So this is a disease that will kill anywhere from 90, the likelihood of you getting this disease is surviving is anywhere from 95 to 99.99%. So in other words, you're likely not going to die from this, but what you will much more likely die from is cardiovascular disease, heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure, you know, that's probably a 30%. So, Can you similarly review what's going on with high linoleic acid content and how it contributes to the physiology and and the anatomical disruption within the intima and the inside of the blood vessels that leads to these plaque formations and and causing heart disease?
1: Yeah, let's go over that. So there's a great, um, all of us hear about, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol and LDL. Right. Um, back in the 1980s, there were a pair of doctors and science doctor, doctors who were also scientists, um, Brown and Goldstein, who got a Nobel prize for discovering the LDL receptor. So the next thing that they decided to do was, and I want to look up this quote here. Um, unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me. Um, Okay, there we go. I got it. Um, So Brown and Goldstein discovered the LDL receptor. um, And the next thing that they tried to do, one of the first things that happens in atherosclerosis is your white blood cells, your macrophage, another type of leukocyte, turns into what they call a foam cell. And the thought was that this happened because they take up an excess amount of LDL full of cholesterol and fats. And they become stuffed with it and turn into this foam cell, which is a, you know, a cell a macrophage often stuffed with fat and cholesterol, right? That's what the core of an atherosclerotic plaque is, is basically dead macrophages and other types of cells that are stuffed with cholesterol and fat. That's why they blame it on cholesterol and fat, right? Because that's what you find. Um, and there's certainly a certain logic to that. So Brown and Goldstein... some ldl and they took some macrophages and they put them in a vial together and they waited for the macrophages to turn into foam cells but they didn't it didn't work the experiment failed right shortly after they discovered that they had to modify the ldl and they didn't exactly know what the modification was that was happening in the body but if you modify the ldl the macrophages will hoover it up and turn into foam cells which is what's happening in the body but the modification they used didn't, wasn't what you see in the body, right? It was purely a lab-based thing. But what it made perfectly clear was that LDL does not initiate, initiate atherosclerosis on its own. Okay. That's an important thing to understand. Then two other doctors came along, Steinberg and Whitston, Um very brilliant guys. They figured out what kind of modification happens to LDL. It turns out, And then they did some animal experiments and then they did some human experiments to confirm that this was actually the mechanism that happened in people. So what were these experiments that they did? They took first rabbits and then humans and they fed them either soybean oil or seed oils. And then they measured how fast and how susceptible their LDL was to this modification, which is now called oxidized LDL. And it turns out that Olive oil is protective because it doesn't contain linoleic acid. It turns out that what's happening in linoleic acid is no, no, almost the exact true. same. Olive oil has, oil has linoleic acid. Very little, typically. Well, we'll get in, let's get into yeah, olive oil in a minute, I, I, I as an aside. I definitely aside
0: want to have a with you because it's, 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 it's an ostensibly healthy fat, but even one that I think many people would benefit from limiting, severely limiting, maybe restricting completely. I
1: I agree with that, but we should should talk about olive oil separately um, because olive oil has one unique trait that other fats don't seem to have in regards to coronary coronary disease. So let's come back to the olive oil topic. Um, What they discovered is that this oxidized LDL is what is actually getting hoovered up by the LDL to form foam cells. And it's the LDL susceptibility to this process is controlled by the linoleic acid content of the diet in animals and in humans. And that's a result that's been repeat. That's been repeated several times. subsequently that literally the definition of an atherogenic lipid in your blood is one that contains oxidized omega-6 fats. That's it. That's the definition. As I said, a while ago, All of what I'm saying here is mainstream medicine, but they just don't understand the consequences of what they're looking at. They're not connecting the dots well enough across these different areas of disease and research, right? So the standard explanation of why you get heart disease and why it progresses the way it does is because the omega-6 fats in your blood get oxidized and become toxic and progress you all the way through atherosclerosis until it finally kills you. That's the standard explanation for what causes heart disease. I can't tell you how many cardiologists I have talked to who don't understand that that's what the medical literature says is causing this disease. Now, it's worse if you're on a high-carbohydrate diet, and we can get into that, into why a ketogenic diet is somewhat protective against the negative effects of this. But this is the standard, I can't stress enough that this is the standard explanation for cardiovascular disease in the medical literature, right? That seed oils oxidize, and that's what causes the pathology. Now, unfortunately, after doing this research, uh, Daniel Steinberg convinced Merck to bring a drug to market called a statin, which some of you may have heard of, and statins were found to reduce LDL and the hypothesis was that that would reduce your susceptibility to cardiovascular disease, which they do to some small extent, but all of a sudden you're doing what we talked about prior, you're replacing with fixing the cause of the problem with taking a drug to put a Band-Aid on a problem. I don't think that's a good approach. It's yeah, not a an drug, approach I'm comfortable taking myself. A drug
0: in this case, which has severe metabolic uh, mitochondrial implications.
1: Yeah, statins are a mitochondrial toxin. We talked. We talked. We talked earlier about how important your mitochondria are. Right. I would definitely want to avoid taking a mitochondrial toxin.
0: Now you can and compensate for it by taking CoQ10, but it's still you just it, it can it's you're not treating the cause. You got to treat the cause if you want to get success. Successful.
1: That that's exactly, and that's the engineering approach to things, right? right? You don't put keep band band aids on things. At some point you have to just stop and say, okay, we went down the wrong path and back it out. I mean, in my experience with junior developers, this was the hardest thing to get them to do. They would come up with some neat new idea and they would keep poking at it, trying to fix it. When sometimes the thing to do is just to walk back, walk it back, go back to what you had before and try and come up with a new approach to it. And I mean, you know, cardiovascular disease has gone down a lot over since the middle of the 20th century, but it hasn't been because of statins. It, I mean, I'm, su- I'm sure, you know, that it's because of smoking because it started well before statins were introduced. Mm-hmm. So, but statins is kind of a side topic. Let's not go down that road, right? Now. Yeah, yeah, but, so-, so and But if people are curious, why did these guys abandon this line of research? It's because they decided that applying this mandate of statins was the way to treat the problem. Um, yeah. Research, of course, has continued and you can find countless papers talking about uh, the oxidative stress model of cardiovascular disease. And as far as I'm aware, all the mechanisms of why it progresses center around the oxidation of omega-6 fats. And, you know, there are lots of other players in that. I mean, smoking, for instance, why is smoking smoking so bad for you? Because it kicks off the oxidation of omega-6 fats in your body through these fairly, you know, highly toxic chemicals, acrolein, okay. Mm -hmm. Quick little tangent here. Acrolein is thought to be the chemical in cigarette smoke. Um, That's a great Wikipedia article to read about acrolein. Biocide is what they call it, meaning it is so toxic it kills anything it comes in contact with, right? This is why you shouldn't smoke because you are sucking a biocide into your lungs, okay? What's another way to make acrolein? Well, you can take physiological levels of glucose and linoleic acid and mix them in water, and they will generate acrolein on their own. Just let them sit there, and they will generate toxins. Right. And that seems to be exactly as that, you know, rodent model I talked about before, where they induced heart disease in a couple of days. That's exactly what they did. They gave them you know, Pufa and hyperglycemia and boom, they got heart failure in a couple of days. Um, Or
0: you you could heat vegetable oil and get high levels, so much so that an order of French fries would be equal to several packs of smoking cigarettes with
1: respect to acrylic concentration. Brilliant point, Um, brilliant point. So it turns out in China, they have a big problem with lung cancer in women who don't smoke right? It's a big problem over there. Turns out it's caused by cooking with seed oils. carcinogen. So, oops, that's kind of a problem. Um, took them a while to figure this out, but if you cook, you know, they fry with seed oils and say a wok and they are breathing in the fumes. And if you don't have enough adequate ventilation, it gives you lung cancer. Yeah, That's you know it's odd they don't put a warning on the wesson corn oil that you can go buy at the supermarket known carcinogen in humans please don't cook with this um
0: well yeah maybe let's tangent back to the olive oil discussion because i think it's an important one and i think I actually read on your blog in the discussion it wasn't in your article it was in the comment section where you replied to someone uh essentially explaining how to fractionally distill the olive oil and separate the dangerous linoleic acid and remove it from that for essentially just an investment of time. You know, there's no other cost involved where you
1: put well, it, in- it, it. Okay, let's, yes, let's talk about olive oil because this is, it's kind of interesting to understand olive oil in the terms of the whole yeah. disease process, right? It's um, an important
0: one. This is definitely an important one.
1: Yeah. The main fat in olive oil is oleic acid. Oleic right. acid is your body's favorite fat. Your body makes hordes of oleic acid every day, which is why it's not um, considered an essential fat. And that's another thing we should touch upon. Um, oleic acid is much more resistant to oxidation than linoleic acid is, which is why olive oil's a pretty decent cooking oil. Um, in... Two different disease models that we've looked at so far, cardiolipin oxidation and LDL oxidation, oleic acid is protective because, again, it's, you know, the only one double bond, so it's much less susceptible to oxidative damage. So that's all good things. What's really interesting is that in some of these studies that looked at oxidative damage in LDL, oleic acid has the property of being able to replace linoleic acid in LDL. Other fats, like palmitic acid is what they used in one study, palm oil, does not do that, right? So it's, I think, important to have sources of oleic acid in your diet. The problem with olive oil is that, as Dr. Mercola noted, it does have a fair amount of linoleic acid. The percentages that I've seen quoted in literature range from 2%, which is awesome, to 22%, which is not good. Um, The other problem is the olive oil market is hugely corrupt. Mm -hmm. And what they often do is they cut olive oil with cheaper seed oils, uh, like soybean oil, and then add um yeah is another common one too they yeah they add other chemicals the, to make it look and worst. smell like olive oil and they sell it you know i mean it's fraud it's food adulteration but 80 to 90 percent of the olive oil market is adulterated with seed oil so you can get better olive oils mostly what i do is just buy california olive oils which typically come out as you know the top rated in terms of not being adulterated but you can't really tell how much linoleic acid it has. So I use it, but I use a little bit of it. Um, not a lot, not for cooking, just for some salad dressings that I like to make. Um, Cause you, you just, now the fractionation test that you were talking about is something that I thought worked for years, which is that you put your olive oil in the fridge and if it solidifies, that means it's a good fat. The problem is, you know, I read the research and it turns out that neither the healthy or the unhealthy fat freezes, solidifies in the fridge. So what that test tells you is how much saturated fat your olive oil contains, which can be quite a lot. I mean, I've had jars of olive oil that turned pretty much solid in the fridge Mm -hmm. and some other ones that were what I thought good brands that didn't solidify at all in the fridge. So it's, unfortunately not that's kind of why i avoid olive oil generally because you really can't tell what the unhealthy fat content is so you're um, saying the
0: refrigerator trick that you discussed in the, in one of your comments was uh doesn't work it doesn't work
1: oh darn sorry okay <laughs> See, i did that for i did that myself for years and then i think it was the olive oil council of california went and actually did some research did they hired a guy to actually do the research and it doesn't work. Bummer. Okay. Um, but, All right. You know, so that's science. Normally,
0: I guess there's, there's so many different ro- roads that we can go down, but I guess it might be wise here to discuss the stress. Now that you have a, a foundational grounding of some of the reasons why you want to seriously consider avoiding or limiting, severely restricting the limit, the lake acid. Let's talk about the numbers. Cause I think this is the key. And I, and I, I believe I have a a strategy that will be, very effective, but I wanted to run it by you. So it's a pretty simple strategy. I mean, replicate what our ancestors did, approach the historical standards of uh, a mere 150 years ago, which is two to three grams per day. So, um, and I guess that the concern is obviously you could probably go above that without too much harm, but what's the threshold? Is it five grams? Is it 10? It's cert- I think anything over 10 has got to be too much. But I'm wondering what your conclusion, is after your review of the extensive literature, as to what threshold should we limit our linoleic acid to? How many grams per day? We
1: don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we, I know so we don't Let's. Know. But let me talk about that real quick, because that's a key point, right? So there's a tribe of... Um, Indians in the Amazon uh, jungle in Bolivia, I think, called the Tsimane. And the Tsimane are the poster children for the cardiologists of late because they don't get heart disease, right? That's really cool. They're, and you know, they're not unique. Americans didn't get heart disease 150 years ago. You know, the British didn't get heart disease 150 years ago but these people still don't get heart disease. So they've been down there for a number of years studying them. And they noticed, um, you know, that as they were getting more exposure to what they call, quote, unquote, market foods, they started getting obese. Oops. So they did a neat paper. Okay, so now what do we, so what do we take away from that? If you don't want to get heart disease, eat like samane. That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, they have other health issues, like they don't often get enough food to eat but that's awesome. So then they noticed that they were starting to get fat. So they did a study on why were they starting to get fat? And it was because I read one, I think it was a magazine article. It was hilarious. They said that obesity in the Samani was associated with motorboat ownership, right? What motorboat ownership? That's bizarre. But they live out in the middle of the jungle the only way they can get to the food store to buy market food is on a motorboat what are they buying they're buying cooking oil so we have this paper in the samane that says oh look obesity in this healthy tribe is correlated with how with the recent increase in cooking oil in their diet right so let's look at what they ate the the ancestral model that you're talking about what used to be called the paleo model which I think is absolutely the right thing to do without question. Um, They were eating as much animal meat and fat as they could get. We talked about oleic acid, how it's a healthy acid. It's your body's favorite fat. Most animal fats, I think beef tallow is like 46% oleic acid. Lard is like 36% oleic acid. I mean, depending on the lard that you get, Lard basically has the same fatty acid as uh, profile as um, olive oil does. So it's, you know, the other healthy fat. Although we'll talk about the linoleic acid content of that as well. Um, So what should you be eating? What do the Samana eat? Well, they eat, you know, a fair amount of carbohydrates because they're very poor people. They live in the jungle and they, you know, grow yams and things like that and bananas they eat as much animal protein and fat as they can get their hands on. And their biggest complaint in life is that they can't eat as much meat as they want. And they eat lots of vegetables and they don't eat any seed oils up until recently, which is why they're starting to get sick. So what I tell people is it's what you avoid that makes, I mean, the difference between the paleo diet, lots of anthropologists criticize the the whole ancestral health concept because they say, we don't know what these people ate and they ate all sorts of different things. Cause they lived all over the world. And that's absolutely right. They ate it. But the point is we do know exactly what they weren't eating. All of them weren't eating industrial seed oils because they didn't exist up until recently. They weren't eating super high amounts of carbohydrates with some exceptions. Um, and you can track those exceptions through their dental health in the literature. So um, they weren't eating lots of refined foods, right? So the caveat here is that what you eat is not just what you ate, but it's also what your food ate,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I want to get that too. Yeah, right.
1: So, and this 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 is a key point. I mean, I presume most of us remember DDT, the anti uh, mosquito toxin that was banned back i guess in the 70s the problem with ddt was that ddt concentrated up the food chain so a mosquito would eat a tiny little bit of it and get sick and get eaten by a frog and so on and so on and so on until you got to a bald eagle who got this huge bolus of ddt from the foods that it was eating and it died or its eggs would break so they banned ddt seed oils do the exact same thing so there's the pair that i mentioned before alfheim and ramsden uh, along with some other co-authors did a really interesting study where they took salmon, farmed salmon from Norway where Alfheim was from and they fed it soybean oil, which is what they feed farm salmon is uh, soy meal. Right. Um, so they fed the salmon and they looked at what happened to it and it got the typical things that you would expect. It got, you know, high fatty acid or high got it got obese basically right but then they took the salmon and they fed it to mice and the mice got obese too right so it bioaccumulated into the mice concentrated up the food chain what do we feed our animals we feed them as much grains as we can right i mean that's what pigs and chickens are fed cattle we only feed a little bit at the end of their lives cattle are ruminants so they're somewhat protected against this but you know back to d uh to the cookie dough diet d12492 the manufacturer of that had been telling everybody that the fatty acid composition was boy i think it was like nine or ten percent uh linoleic acid and they were basing this off the usda um, food database. You know, the thing that we all look at if we want to figure out how much of different nutrients are in, um, a food that's all aggregated by the USDA. So they got curious and they went and they actually tested the lard that they were using in this diet. The fats used in this diet are lard and soybean oil. And what they discovered was that the percentage of N6 fats in the lard they were using was twice. What the USDA said it had been. Because the food, the f- food that pigs are eating has changed over the years, and they're accumulating a lot more N6. Same thing with chickens. And since we know it bioaccumulates, you also need to invo- avoid what I call industrially farmed animals, right? Now, cows have a rumen, and the bacteria in the rumen protects you from this. Cows also get sick from too much grain in their diet, but they get sick in a different way. They don't bioaccumulate these fats to the same level. The same is true for uh, other ruminants like goats or lamb. Um, so you've got to not only, and the t- same true is true for chicken eggs, which is why you want to try and get uh, omega-3 chicken eggs, which are fed with flax instead of um less healthy grains or ideally pastured chicken eggs, which is probably the best option for chicken eggs.
0: So let me d- dive down the rabbit hole of the chickens. Cause I've got seven to 10, maybe 12, depending on the time of the year and how vicious the predators are attacking my chickens and I'm unable to protect them. But anyway, um, chickens are the largest source of linoleic acid in my diet. And I noticed this when I became aware of linoleic acid and the implications on it's on health. So, and then I r- realized that even though I've got two acres for my chickens to run around and consume the, that, and they're clearly pastured, I feed them reverse osmosis, clean water. Uh, and they don't, they only get organic grains, but you know, I didn't think that was an issue because I thought that was a state of the art. And that's what chickens were designed to eat. And then I realized, I look at the, the, the bag of the grains that they're eating; it's soy and corn primarily. So I said, this isn't gonna work. So I stopped it. They are not eating any of that anymore. And the only thing I feed them is mung beans, which I sprout. I give them a cup of mung beans that sprouts over four days. So it's like half a gallon, probably gonna double it to a gallon a day because I think they need more carbs. And then I give them mealworms. And I was surprised though, mealworms have about 20 to 30% of the fatty acids are are linoleic acid.
1: Now it's got again. It's What are the mealworms being fed?
0: Yeah, I know that's the thing. I think, so actually my experiment is probably going to be extended and I'm going to probably be raise my own mealworms, which is a lot of extra work, but- My my
1: apologies for all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So, but anyway, I'm going to do the due diligence. I've already identified the lab. I'm going to do the fatty acid analysis on the eggs pre and post and see what the difference
1: is. But, you know, it's- Yeah, and off, offline, I should, I'll tell you how the uh, farms that I used to buy eggs from raise their chickens to deal with the predator issue but
0: okay that's fine i mean it's not a big deal
1: i mean it's, it's not just a rifle
0: <laughs> no 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 i mean you can there's yeah that, that's but the big issue is optimizing the lactic acid content which any so i mean you've got to be careful and i would not eat or recommend anyone eat chicken meat for a variety of reasons because it's almost impossible to find it with low lactic acid content and it also extends to, to pigs So there's other, other reasons that some people are concerned about that, but so pigs and chicken, see, this is the thing it's the devil's in the details. And we, you know, all, many people are big advocates of paleo and cyclical keto, but if you don't understand this fundamental concept of excess linoleic acid is toxic, then you're going to make massive mistakes that could clearly contribute to premature disease and aging. So I want to get back to the original question because you, you said we don't know as to how much, but, uh, but that's not gonna cut. We, we need to know because we have to make a decision. You know, We can't wait for these studies decades down the road. Yes. And, and, I, and I think there's a, enough historical anecdotal suggestion. If, if our ancestors ate two to three grams, why don't we limit it to two to three grams? I don't see a downside for doing that. I really don't, especially if you're already metabolically ill because what we neglected to mention unlike sugar, when you eat sugar, it's in and out. I mean, you might build some saturated fat stores up, but it's, it's not going to, when you eat excess linoleic acid, it gets integrated in your cell membranes and stored for years, years, which is why it's such a problem. So you right. would have got to address this now, not later. So I'm, I want a more definitive answer. What's your just, what's your yes, risk? So not limited to two to three grams a day.
1: What we, uh, before we went on to the Excellent chicken tangent. Um, so what I do and what I tell people to do is that you want to avoid all concentrated sources of linoleic acid, right? Mm-hmm. Which means, and it mean, you know, I mean, I've been reading ingredients for because of my sugar avoidance. I've been reading ingredient labels diligently since I was in my twenties. So this was fairly easy for me to do because I was reading all the labels anyway. So look for, for you know like chips chips are fried in vegetable oils you can get chips that are fried in better things um, like uh, olive oil or coconut oil um, yeah but both of those oils still have linoleic like, acid in coconut oil does has virtually none yes some a tiny amount I mean less than tallow oh, way yeah. less than lard um, coconut co- co- Coconut oil is a pretty good... I, I prefer to cook in animal fats myself, but I do use coconut oil from time okay. to time. If good you're oil, looking that's for... A good
0: pearl. That's a good pearl. Huh? Beg your pardon? That's a good pearl.
1: Um, I And, you know, it's interesting. It's used as the control in some of these animal model diets. Do you, do you prefer it uh, over butter? No, I mostly use butter.
0: Okay, that's what I thought.
1: Yeah, I mostly use butter. Um, I don't use bacon grease because of the problem with the linoleic acid content of lard from industrial fed pigs. I used to be able to get pastured pork, but it's super expensive and I have to drive an hour and a half both ways. (laughs) 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 So that's kind of a luxury item. Um, But you have to understand where it's concentrated, right? It's concentrated in obvious places like anything with soybean oil in it, which is every salad dressing just about on the market. I think in all of my years um, before Mark Sisson's Primal Kitchen came out, I was able to find exactly one salad dressing that was made with olive oil and not a bunch of seed oils. So that's one way that people get into trouble, especially when you know, if they're trying to pursue a lower carb carbohydrate diet and they're looking for some healthy fat options, a lot of people start chugging the seed oils and, I, and in the form of salad dressing. That's exactly what I did. Um, so that's one thing to look for. You know, any processed food is almost going to have um, seed oils in it. Um, chips, obviously, are almost always fried and processed food. But I mean. You know, you go to McDonald's. What are the French fries fried in? They're fried in seed oils, um, thanks to not just picking a
0: Any fast Uh, food restaurant?
1: Yeah, any fast food place. Um, There are a couple of places. I think Buffalo Wild Wings actually fries their buffalo wings in tallow, which is kind of cool. Unfortunately, I'm super gluten insensitive, and they are not a gluten friendly place, so that's kind of a shame. I'd love to go try that. I mean, I've made french fries fried in tallow oh my god they're heavenly i not so much, much better not
0: too much acrylene in those french fries
1: no you get a little bit but i mean i mean your body develops produces and processes like a lot of these things it's amazing i mean you know just to kind of step back here a little bit is it's amazing how many toxins your body makes. Yeah. <laughs> I it's mean, small. stuff that would kill you if you drank it and your body's producing it all day long like acrolein and acetone yeah. and well, aldehyde. The hormesis, in small doses is actually beneficial. Well, but we also have, you know, we have systems that process these things because it's mm-hmm. expected, right? right. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've you're aware of glutathione. Glutathione is the one of the fundamental antioxidants in the body. And it's so fundamental that if you are missing the gene to make glutathione, you die before you can even be born, right? It's a big problem. Glutathione's major job is to, or one of its major jobs is to detoxify HNE. And one of the ways that they can tell that you have excess HNE is your glutathione levels are depressed because it's so busy detoxifying HNE. So, you know, it just, just... Again, to kind of step back, what amazes me is people who go to all these measures and you know my I'll hold up my girlfriend as an example. She was a dr. grieger style vegan when we got together <laughs> and had a farm and grew organic food and you know went to extremes to avoid toxins in food, and then went home and cooked with seed oils and there are so many people who are like this, who are genuinely trying to do their best to have a healthy diet, and then they're chugging down this metabolic, this thing that turns into a metabolic yeah. toxin in your body, and they wonder why they can't lose weight. She, yeah, sure. by the way, uh, after I told her what did I, I tell, told her, what I just said here: um, avoid seed oils, avoid refined carbohydrates eat animal food and animal fats. And she lost 56 pounds in two and a half months, like that. Yeah. And her autoimmune yeah. disease, fibromyalgia went into complete remission. So yes, I you need to avoid it as much as possible. But the essential fat issue is just, I will touch on that, that lots of health organizations say that you should eat Uh, seed oils because it's an essential fatty acid. That is actually not correct. That was deduced in a paper done back in 1930. And another paper just came out and showed conclusively that linoleic acid is not, in fact, an essential fatty acid, that what's essential is uh, DHA and arachidonic acid, which you get from animal foods.
0: Yeah. I I had a friend who looked into that though, and into the materials and the methods and the diet that they were using wasn't completely free of linoleic acid, so it's sort of a, it's sort of a, 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 a moot issue though because it's you need it. In so, you, it's almost impossible not to get linoleic acid if you eat food. It's in it's everything almost.
1: almost. It's in everything. It's yeah, moot. It's, you don't have totally to worry right. about
0: it. It, that's so why. It, I, that's in some ways it shouldn't be essential because if you eat, you're going to get it.
1: Yes. The only way to become deficient in linoleic acid is to either be in a lab or under the care of a physician. (laughs) It will not have to happen to you other than those two circumstances. Yeah. Um,
0: So so with glutathione, that's a pretty good pearl because so many people use glutathione supplements or glutathione glutathione precursors without understanding that, well, yes, nice to have optimal glutathione, but- let's get rid of the need to gen- to use it by lowering our linoleic acid.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then there are, there are some foods, you know, so there's some foods that are double whammy, like beef has low linoleic acid, even if it's grain finished beef, uh, if it's grass finished, it has higher DHA, which is the main difference, which is an awesome way to get your DHA. Um, Although I will tell people that you know, if you can't afford grass-finished beef, just eat grain-fed and eat some fish every once in a while. Um, but beef is also the primary source of a chemical called carnosine. Um, oh, yes. Carnosine we're going to carnosine is... now. Yes, indeed. So what does carnosine do? It's been shown to be anti-atherogenic and la, la, la. It's wonderful. Well, I've got this spiffy paper here that if I can... I like. Yeah, I was looking into it
0: as a mitochondrial a stimulant, uh, and it's a dipeptide, two amino acids put together, beta alanine and histidine, and uh, it, it's a sacrificial sacrificial scavenger of what they in the literature call ALEs, advanced lipooxidation oxidation end products, which is very similar to AGEs, advanced glycation end products, which is another name for HNE and all the other. Uh, reactive oxygen, reactive oxygen species, get generated from from uh, oxidizing linoleic acid.
1: Yeah, it's so. Here's here's the quote: A recent study by Colzani and colleagues analyzed and compared the ability of several classical carbonyl scavengers, and we won't worry about what that is, to prevent the carbonylation of proteins, and concluded that carnosine is the most effective scavenger for HNE. So we're back. Carbonylation of proteins is basically the process through which proteins in your body get damaged and become ineffective and this is it's a big deal it's it's a huge deal because there was a paper that i found that i didn't include in my list here they looked at the how many proteins hne damages in the cell it damages 24% of your proteins right so one of the things and I mean, they looked at this in various, I've seen work on this in various different disease processes. Um, but there's, you know, I talked about common threads through different disease processes, and I'd like to touch on one right now. Yeah. In heart failure, in Alzheimer's, and in age related macular degeneration, one of the things they see is an inability of the cell to produce enough energy. The mitochondria are getting damaged, right? HNE does that damage, it damages 24% of the proteins in the cell, primarily around energy production. So in cancer, uh, one of the worst cancers is glioblastoma, which is a brain cancer. And there's a researcher up in Boston, Thomas Seyfried, who decided to go look for, try and figure out why the mitochondria are, are getting damaged in glioblastoma. And what he found was they all have oxidized cardiolipin, every single cancer cell he looked yeah. at. Had damaged cardiolipin in it. And another part of the cell that gets damaged, one of the cell one of the ways your cells produce energy is they um, basically ferment glucose into pyruvate, right? Outside of the mitochondria. Um, and this isn't, you know, this is a perfectly normal part of metabolism. And then they produce something called pyruvate. And then there's an a molecule called pyruvate dehydrogenase that takes pyruvate into the mitochondria so the mitochondria can burn it very efficiently for fuel. Well, one of the things that HNE does is it breaks pyruvate dehydrogenase and they see this in Alzheimer's where their cells are no longer able to produce enough energy, right? This is why your cells are dying in Alzheimer's. The beta amyloid plaques in Alzheimer's disease are induced by HNE. There's a great Mm -hmm. model that came out of Harvard a couple of years ago showing that. Um, And in cancer, If you can't get pyruvate out of the cell, out of the cytosol, the part of the cell surrounding the mitochondria, it has to ferment there and turn it into uh, energy, which is what we call the Warburg effect, where you start shifting over to this damaged primitive fuel system. And the evidence seems to be that that's because you've broken your mitochondria, right? Even the critical, the most important part of the mitochondria complex five um, ADP synthase, which is what takes all the energy coming from your mitochondria and turns it into ATP, which is what fuels the rest of your body. HNE damages that protein. This is a huge issue. There's no more fundamental problem in aging and health than protein damage, right? Yeah. All
0: right. Let's go back to a tangent from the carnosine because that is an important one. one, At a point I wanted to discuss with you earlier, one of the Uh, paradoxes that just baffled my mind for decades was that why people could eat a keto or carnivore diet and do essentially high fat, low carbs and do really well. And the converse that people could eat low fat, high carb and do very well too. They can both take care of diabetes. I mean, it's pretty well proven and, and I couldn't resolve that. And it turns out, once I understood this linoleic acid, that was the answer. They, both of those strategies, typically, not always, of course, because you can have high LA foods in carnivore, uh, theoretically, is that they both are typically low LA. That's and right. They address the fundamental reason, but what they don't address, if you take the vegetarian approach, is carnosine. Is which? Carnosine.
1: Carnosine, right, 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 right.
0: Virtually there's no carnosine in the vegetarian diet or very little, almost right. Not.
1: Right, right. Um, yeah, it's a, you're missing these detoxes. There's a hilariously funny paper looking at diet and oxidized LDL, which as we've discussed is a, uh, the definition of oxidized LDL is LDL with oxidized seed oils. And, they couldn't figure out what was going on because they put these people on a healthy, low-fat vegetarian diet or vegetarian-like diet and their ox LDL went up. Oops, right? Well, as we've discussed, I mean, one of the interesting interplays about this and the reason I specifically tell people that they need to eat animal fats is that there are other fats that may in fact be essential fats that we need to eat that you can only get through animal fats. So one of the weirder... Uh, dietary trivia pieces is if you don't give dolphins this fat called heptadecanoic acid, which is a 17 chain saturated fat, they get diabetes. Why would a dolphin get diabetes? They don't need any carbohydrates. They live in the ocean, but the lack of that fat in their diet causes them to get diabetes. And that happens in people too. It turns out that people with low levels of these two animal fats, heptadecanoic and pentadecanoic acid are more predisposed to get type two diabetes. So I think you need to get those. And there are papers out there saying, is this an essential fatty acid? If you don't get it, you get sick. That's the definition of an essential fatty acid. So I think, and you know, if you look at the healthy, the healthiest vegetarian culture that I'm aware of the Jains in India, They've been at this for 5,000 years, longer than any other vegetarian culture on earth. And they know they have to eat dairy food, that they cannot be healthy without it. And dairy is of course the richest source of heptadecanoic and pentadecanoic acids. So there's other, um, you know, so you need to make sure you get enough oleic acid you can do that easily through um, the diet as well with animal fats. so, because you want you want to make sure that you're protecting yourselves against oxidated fats. The, the, the amount so it's, of it's,
0: linoleic acid, though. So, but but there's just to your point. Uh, I mean, obviously, we, we're both in strong agreement that you need to have some high quality animal fats in your diet because it's not just the fats, the heptad acid and these other fats, but there's my other micronutrients that are yes. Are in that fat that that we probably have yet to discover the benefits that we need, and you don't have to take a supplement; you just take real food.
1: Well, the, yeah, and there's vitamin K two. Um, oh, there are all sorts of fatty, you know, fat soluble um, vitamins. Sure, vitamin A, vitamin A. So yeah, I mean, you know, I came across a great paper years ago looking at eating vegetables, and they said, oh. Gosh darn! If you eat vegetables without any fat, you don't absorb any of the fatty, any of the fat-saturable vitamins. That's soluble nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. You have so, to eat vegetables with fat in order to get the maximum nutrient load out of them. You know.
0: And I mean, okay. So I'm going to try for the third time now to <laughs> get you pinned down. Okay. So two to three grams. 150 years ago, I don't see any downside for someone who's metabolically ill to lowering their their total dietary intake of linoleic acid to under 10 grams and by the way there's an easy 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 way to do it you don't have to send all your food out for analysis you just enter it into chronometer and they've got an assay there that says how much grams of omega-6 to the 10th of a gram and you can just assume that 90 percent of that's linoleic acid so what is the downside to limiting your linoleic acid to five grams
1: there's no downside yeah. There's no downside. But you want we to keep it as low as possible. Why I we do, do we this. Yes. I do this through what I avoid. Right. So let me talk about a little bit about what I d- okay. eat. I'll, Mostly okay. beef.
0: I just wanted to get you down to that. Because <laughs> yeah. that, that, to me, that's the take home message. It's what you need to do to reap all the benefits of this, this incredible amount of knowledge that you've captured over the last decade.
1: Yeah. You want it, You want it to be as low as is possible with the, with the understanding that you'll never get to zero and you don't need to be at zero. No, no, no. It's I, probably- I just worry about people taking that, you know, not understanding if, that. If part you
0: eat food, you can't get to zero. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. Um, so I eat mostly beef. I, eat, you know, vegetables, I cook mostly in butter. Um, I eat a little bit of fruit. I eat occasional grains, you know, uh, Mostly, occasionally I'll have corn, a uh, little bit of rice, potatoes, that sort of stuff once in a while. Um, I'm mostly on a keto diet, but, you know, once you fix your metabolic um, system, then you can go back and forth a lot easier and you don't need to be. I don't see any reason to be on strict keto long term.
0: I think it's healthy. Well, no, I'm in to with cyclical keto is the way to go. Often. Cyclical
1: keto or intermittent I, keto. I switch- Absolutely.
0: I switch almost um, every other day. I'll have like 100, 150, then I go down to 50, 100, 150, you know, for car- grams of carbs.
1: So. Yeah. And I, I do lots of fasted training. I mean, there's a fascinating paper. Oh, sure. They looked at um, a ketogenic diet in rodents and they found that they were protected. And it was fascinating. The reason that they were protected is because they were able to burn HNE as fuel, right? They still got to- oh, okay. You got to be kidding! Are you serious? Yes. What fuel?
0: I didn't think that was possible. Yes, it's they burned it as fuel.
1: Oh, that's the best scenario. So, but if you add a little bit more, you know, insulin into the system, then it turns that it turns fat burning off, and H and E goes out of the mitochondria and does more damage. Right. So that's that's a
0: reason to to work out in a fasted state.
1: One now, of those- Oh, absolutely. That's what I do. I think working out in a fasted state is one of the most important health things that you can do without question. And I mean, I'm talking about, you know, hours. I go out for three, four, five hours. You're doing cardio. I do cardio. I also do some weight stuff. Yeah, I I had
0: cardio a long time ago, but I, you know, I don't do any cardio now.
1: But uh, Well, we, you know, that's a whole nother topic. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. Phil Maffetone, I presume.
0: Oh yeah. Or, yeah. Of him. Love him. I don't know him personally. Sure.
1: Yeah. No, I've, I've been following his approach for years. I think he's, he's a bit of a genius. He's a smart guy. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, they, now they still get liver failure if they're on a lab keto diet ultimately. Right. And that's clearly caused by the omega-6 fats. I mean, this one's, you know, back to the TPN, um, the total parenteral nutrition we touched on a while ago, the intralipid with the soybean oil, they've been feeding this stuff to people for decades. And finally, Boston Children's Hospital figured out that it's the seed oils that are causing liver failure, right? That's the big problem with putting people on TPN is liver failure, especially infants, because a lot of there's something called short gut syndrome, where babies are born with guts that can't absorb food and they need to put them on TPN to keep them alive. But one of the things that would happen is they get liver failure and then they figured out, Oh, it's the omega-6 fats. It's the fact that it's soybean oil. If we use fish oil, it doesn't uh, happen. Okay. So they went to the FDA, which has a black box warning on intralipid, the highest warning that they have, this will kill you. Or can potentially kill you. Death is a side effect of using this. Yeah, should And be they convinced the, the FDA to take the black box label off the fish oil product because it wasn't needed, because it doesn't have the to- toxic effects of the soybean oil product. And they looked at all sorts of different alternatives. I mean, I have a slide from the researcher who uh, figured this out and convinced the FDA that it was harmless. And every single product that they looked at that contained omega- high levels of High levels, meaning more than like a fraction of a percent, was harmful to the liver. So, what what's the best
0: alternative for intralipid? If you're if you need uh, for, for hyperal, uh, some type of lipid replacement or fat replacement because you just can't have sugar, it's not a good idea. You need some
1: fats. The product is so, called Omega Ven. Omega what? Omega Ven. V E N.
0: V E N. Omega Ven. I have not heard. I haven't practiced clinical medicine in a hospital for almost two decades. So.
1: Yeah. So the problem is the FDA won't give you Omega-Ven until you get liver failure from intralipid first.
0: Oh, nice. Nice. How convenient. How convenient.
1: But in babies, they're allowed to do it because the evidence of harm was so clear. Don't get me started on the All FDA. Right, that's, another, um, that's
0: another rabbit hole. So yes, any, exactly. any, we're getting close to the end. But we've got to tie things together. So any other strong recommendations you have? And I mean, this you're in the process of writing a book which will be out pretty shortly or hopefully shortly but uh this will all be consolidated but you've got a blog and you still continue to research this and read the literature and provide your pearls so uh this is so powerful so what what are the what are the take-home messages you want people to know apply to do to implement so that they can change your not only their health but the health of their family and the ones they truly love because this is This is the number one thing, in my view, after practicing medicine for over 33 decades, that you've got to do to stay healthy is you've got to limit linoleic acid.
1: So what is it? What do we do? do? You, as you, I can't say anything that you haven't already said in this talk, honestly. (laughs) You want to eat like your ancestors ate because your ancestors were healthier and they were of not eating Industrial seed oils. They were not eating industrial processed carbs in high quantities. They were making sure that they got lots of animal meat and animal fat, and they were getting exercise. You know, I mean, it doesn't really matter what kind of exercise you're doing, just so long as you're doing it. Let me me just give it a little insert here because I want to
0: qualify that statement you just made. You said our ancestors were healthier. Well, we don't know that because it's an individual, but collectively, we know absolutely they were healthier, because they had, didn't have these diseases we talked about. They didn't have heart disease, they didn't have diabetes, they didn't have obesity, you know, for the most part, or cancer, it was a rare disease, so we know
1: collectively they were healthier. Collectively, right, yes, obviously individuals could be better or worse, but I mean, there's, you know, there's a paper I found that came out in the 1960s that looked at genetic causation of CDD, cardiovascular disease, And they compared different populations in the 1960s. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, this was in the Stone Age or something. And they compared African-Americans to people, I think it was in Uganda or Nigeria. And the people in Africa had zero CVD, zero, right? Based on autopsy and looking for evidence of myocardial infarction, they couldn't find any. So this was in the 1960s, there was a popular, and they looked at Japan and Korea and similar findings. This is not, you know, these are recent epidemics. This is, and it's, I think, pretty clear what's causing it. And I think it's really, there's, I have helped so many people in so many different ways by telling people this. And it's typically a short conversation, you know, like my girlfriend who cured her, autoimmune disease, fibromyalgia, she'd been in constant pain for almost 30 years and it went away in a couple of weeks, couple of weeks. You know, I mean, that's amazing as she was, you know, dropping all of her body fat and, you know, everything gets better, it's crazy. And it's so simple to do. It's, this is, I believe the fundamental problem with our modern health is this issue of linoleic acid. There are lots of other things that play into it. There's no doubt about that, but that's the fundamental thing. If you get, if you fix that, you can get away with doing a lot of other things that aren't exactly optimal, but still be healthy. Okay. That's my crucial. That's the takeaway.
0: That is. And it, and the, the the benefit of that or the really the high point, the point that you'd be joyful about is, that really isn't that hard to do. They take a little bit of willpower and discipline initially, but it is pretty simple and it's not expensive. Well, I, I guess it can be more expensive to go more carnivorous, but but well, you still, can, you've got to eat. So yeah. maybe,
1: you know, I, and what and but I mean, carnivore, you know, when, when we're on the road, my favorite place, my favorite thing to do on a road trip is go to McDonald's and get beef patties, which are like a dollar 29 each, perfectly healthy. They're delicious. There, there's nothing in them but beef, that's, salt, so that's and pepper. That's your strategy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, hey, fast food's convenient. I'm not going to go chase down a chick, you know, a rabbit on no, the No, side no, no.
0: <laughs> I'm a little bit more OCD, and, and if I, as long as I'm gone for less than a week, I, I will pre-prepare my own food and bring it with me.
1: So yeah, I, I do, I do that as well. But there are times where you know, it's just. Oh, wow. It's I'm still thinking, so what am I going to do? And they're, they're, so,
0: cheap so, so you're, te- it's very interesting. So, your your perspective is that the toxin, I mean, clearly there's, g- it's not, it's GMO and there's glyphosate and other toxins in there, hormones and chemicals and antibiotics and probably uh, g- uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria. So, but overall, you think, it's one of the healthier foods you can get just throw away the everything else on top of it maybe they it, have the onions but it yeah.
1: avoids the major toxin. yeah
0: yeah so it'll work it'll work yeah So it's, it's just a matter of perspective personally i would i would refrain from doing that too i haven't I think i've been to mcdonald's maybe this century but uh the but it would work it, it clearly would and 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 from a perspective, you are really radically lowering your exposure to the most significant and pernicious metabolic poison and toxin there is, which is linoleic acid.
1: Yes, that's what I and think, and I think you don't it's... have the chicken McNuggets. <laughs> no, you don't eat the chicken McNuggets. You don't get a soda. You get you know beef or patties. French fries. Yeah, you don't eat the French fries. You get beef patties and coffee, and it's perfect. Yeah. The perfectly fine option, um, and not very expensive actually. Is is, is no, cool. and very inexpensive. You can get a nice filling meal for a few bucks, and you know you're on your way. Um, yeah. If you're on a road trip, I mean that's honestly the biggest problem of this whole thing is convenience. Um, when I started ten years ago, and I knew a little less than I knew now. I mean, still the basic stuff I did right off the bat, and um it's much easier now than it used to be. I mean, you know, especially for somebody like me with a gluten intolerance that used to be a Royal pain and now it's a piece of cake. So you really can eat super healthy in a modern environment. If you're just aware of what that means, what does eating healthy mean? It doesn't mean what the dietary guidelines tell you. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you got to not listen to those people.
0: Well, we've got an assignment in front of us, Tucker, we need to help educate the not only the public, but the healthcare professionals who really don't get this. They were at your stage, you know, 15 years ago, as I was up until earlier this year. Uh, you know, I uh, uh, superficially appreciated the fact that these were dangerous things. I didn't have them, but still my linoleic acid content was over 10 grams a day, which is I think far less than ideal. So uh, if you want to optimize your health, especially improve your longevity and just essentially eliminate these degenerative diseases, that's the strategy. And we've got, we've got to educate people. And once you're educated, you got to, Continue the process, educate your family members and the people they love and uh, spread the message because it's a pretty simple one. Uh, And we're giving you the tools to understand the the molecular biology and the physiology and the the historical anatomical reasons why this is such an important strategy.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for letting me have the opportunity to uh, address your audience. All
0: right. Well, before you leave, you got to tell us your, your blog, which I think is Yelling Stop.
1: Yeah. It's uh, yelling-stop.blogspot.com. I'm in the middle of this book, which we had a real sympathy conversation prior to (laughs) talking about this podcast, about what a horrible process writing a book is. And I tend to be really data rich in my posts. So they're not too frequent, but they're pretty filling when they... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when they come out. I am very active on Twitter and I'm constantly looking at the, re- at the literature and posting new things on my Twitter feed and getting into arguments with various people there, over there. So that's a lot of fun. I'm very busy on that. Well, good. Uh, and I cross post everything. So if you look at one or the other,
0: good. Uh,
1: I mean, I don't cross post Twitter to my blog, but all my blog stuff goes to my Twitter feed.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much. And probably have you back on again when your new book comes out.
1: Awesome. Thank you so
0: much. All right.